Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 13, Exodus chapter 12, if you haven't brought a Bible with you, and the pew Bibles and the pew racks in front of you, our passage is found on page 53, page 53 in the pew Bibles, we're continuing our Uh, Sunday morning sermon series through the book of Exodus. Last time we were together in Exodus, a couple Sundays ago, we uh, saw the final plague threatened, the tenth plague uh, threatened the death of the firstborn. Well, here we have an introduction to the Passover and to the Exodus, which is actually going to take place later in chapter 12. The word exodus, by the way, I'm not sure I've mentioned this. Uh, Maybe I did back at the beginning. The word exodus is actually from uh, a a Greek word uh, that means a way out. Uh, Exodus, a way out. In other words, what's going to happen, and we're going to see it here in chapter 12 by the time we're done with it, is that God is going to lead his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. So let's look at our passage this morning, just reading the first uh, 13 verses of Exodus chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And thus far, God's holy word, may you write its truth on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, uh, that we might hear what you have to teach us from your word this morning. God, be, be with us. Speak to us now during this time. For your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The exodus or the deliverance from Egypt is the most significant redemptive event in the Old Testament. It has a, 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 a crucial pattern, an order that other redemptive events basically follow. We see in Luke chapter 9, for instance, the term Exodus is actually used on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah to discuss, literally, the Greek says, Jesus' exodus that he's going to perform and in Jerusalem. And these deliverances, these redemptive events, basically follow a fourfold pattern. The pattern is judgment, substitution, deliverance, and remembrance. Judgment, substitution, deliverance, and remembrance. We're going to look at the first three as they're laid out here in the first 13 verses of chapter 12. We'll look at the fourth, remembrance, more next week because that's what it primarily deals with. Now in chapter 12 as a whole, we see the final plague and we see the Israelites are going to leave uh, uh, Egypt. In verses 1 to 28, we basically see instructions for them. 1 to to 13, we see instructions for the first Passover. And then in 14 to 27, next week, we're going to see instructions for future memorial celebrations of the Passover. So let's look at this instruction for the first Passover this morning that we see in verses 1 to 13. First of all, we need to see that it is said in the context of God's judgment. The context of God's judgment. We saw a couple weeks ago back in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, that God said every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, from the greatest to the lowest, and even of the cattle, all the firstborn will die. Now we can understand the firstborn of Pharaoh being put to death, judgment coming on Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh, going back to chapter 1, was the Pharaoh was killing male babies, ordered the extinction, basically, of of male babies. They were to be tossed into the the Nile River when when male babies were, were, were born. Pharaoh, we see over and over again, had a a hard heart. He would not obey Yahweh's command to let his people go. He was stubborn. He increased Israel's workload. He made it impossible for them to actually complete their tasks, and yet they were beaten when they did not complete their tasks, or at least the foremen were beaten. We can understand at some level that all Egypt might also be responsible as well. They were co- complicit in this oppression. Complicit in it. Pharaoh's plot would not have worked if the people did not go along with it and do what uh, Pharaoh had said. People complied. We also see here in, in chapter 12, uh, verse 12, that Pharaoh even is uh, bringing judgment on all the, the gods of Egypt. Nothing, no one is left without judgment. We've seen in the plagues God's judgment on individual gods with individual plagues. But all the gods are helpless, or all the gods in reality are shown to be non-gods. Yahweh himself is shown to be and will shown to be shown to be once for all supreme, alone worthy of worship, the one true and living God. So in some ways we can, we can see this, this judgment that God is bringing. But note something that is significant in this passage. It's this. The Israelites themselves are worthy of death. That's what this passage teaches us. The Israelites themselves are worthy of death. Notice they have to do something. To avoid the, the death of the firstborn in their homes. Earlier, we've seen, we saw plagues where the Egyptians were plagued and the Israelites were not, and they didn't have to do anything. Now they need to do something for their protection. And if they don't do it, the implication is their firstborn will be killed as well, along with that of the Egyptians. They were liable to the death of their firstborn. John Mackay points out that it was not just a matter of judgment on Egypt's sins. Oppression and mistreatment are the symptoms of a more fundamental problem of rebellion against God. Or as Alec Motir puts it, there were two nations in the land of Egypt. 
Both were resistant to the word of God. He goes on to say this, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are subject to God's wrath. Bill Riken also puts it this way, in the final plague, God taught Israel about their sin and about their salvation. Like Egypt, Israel deserved God's judgment. They themselves were not guiltless simply by being born sinners. Now we actually do see later in, in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua commands the people to put away the idols that they brought with them from Egypt. We see that at the very end of the book of Joshua. But it wasn't just their idolatry. It was the fact that they were sinners. And the wages of sin is death, Scripture says. That includes anyone. Now, I don't want to get too political Today, this morning, I try to avoid that in the the, uh, pulpit, and I'm going to try to avoid it, but today it's common to see through the lens of the oppressed and the oppressor. The reality is, all are sin, all are sinful, all have sinned, all deserve the judgment of God. Certainly there are situations of heinous oppression. But in another sense, all fall short of God's glory. Our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest oppression is spiritual. Only to be solved in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we see God's just judgment on sinners leading to the salvation of those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us, secondly, to substitution. From judgment to substitution. We see substitution here. The lamb is killed instead of the firstborn. Let's look at some of the details here in this passage. The lamb killed instead of the firstborn. In verse 2, This celebration, this Passover celebration, the Lord tells Moses, is to be for you the beginning of the months. It's to be the beginning of the year. Their calendar is changing here. This is how their their new year begins. It begins by celebrating a redemptive event. This is a far cry from... The new year with a a giant ball dropping, right? Celebrating God's redemption of his his people. The ball dropping, I don't know if it still happens. I don't stay up that late anymore. But it used to look to me like doomsday was coming. I don't know about it. Anyhow. The beginning of the year. Time to celebrate. This This is a new year. Let's remember what God has done for us and in redeeming us. 
Verse 3 tells us that this celebration is to begin, basically, or at least the preparations to begin on the, the 10th day of the month. That's when they're to, to, to get a lamb for the, the household. The number 10 is significant, as Dr. Currid uh, points out in his commentary. The 10, the number 10, uh, represents completion. God is going to, to bring about salvation for his people. But more importantly, we see two things about the lamb. The first is the purity of the lamb. Look at verse 5. God tells Moses, your lamb shall be without blemish. That's the first thing. A lamb without blemish. A lamb who has no defect at all. A perfect looking lamb. In verse 6, they are told to keep it until the 14th day. That doesn't mean hold on to it. It means keep it safe. Keep it from harm. Keep it in its pristine state. Make sure that it remains pure. It's also to be, as verse 5 says, a year old. This later we'll see means to be clean according to the law. Animals for sacrifice a year old were clean according to the law. But also look down for nine to verses 9 and 10. It is to be set apart for this purpose only. It's to be eaten, verse 9. And then verse 10 says, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains in the morning, you shall burn. Set apart for this purpose. None is to be left over. Pure, holy, set apart, as pure as a creature can get. That's what this lamb was supposed to be. Secondly, we see the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. Look at verse 7. You shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Put it on the doorposts and the lintel over the door. Why, do they, why are they to do this? First of all, for their protection. This marks out the people of the Lord. Those who are inside belong to Yahweh. Those inside were, were safe. We'll see next week in verse 22, those inside were not to go outside. They would not be safe there. But they were safe inside. But the blood also symbolized the covenants. God's covenant, covenants with his people. O. Palmer Robertson describes a covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And it actually goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where we see this covenant ceremony where God tells Abraham to take animals and to, to cut them in half, a bloody mess, 
and separate the parts of the animals that he has cut in half. And then God himself passes between the parts of the animal. This was, in one way, an ancient covenant-making ceremony. And in the ancient world, it was called cutting a covenant. And that's the biblical language in many places, to cut a covenant because animals were literally cut in two and blood was flowing. And then the parties entering into the covenant, a binding agreement, would, would walk between the pieces of the animals. Although there in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham did not. God alone did. As if to say, if this covenant is broken, God says, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. Ultimately, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps his covenants. God keeps his covenants. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. We belong to the Lord. The Israelites belonged to the the Lord. Because God enters into a covenant relationship with him. A covenant of blood. We also see that this blood of the Lamb is a reminder of God's mercy. The Israelites deserved judgment just like the Egyptians. And just like us. And yet God made a way of escape. A way of escape. We can call it expiation today. To take away the guilt through an offering of atonement, propitiation, turning away the wrath of God. But the good news then and now is that the wrath of God is turned away and poured out on a substitute. One of my favorite verses in all of hymnody is in the the great John Newton hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and wonder. And it goes uh, this way. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is. Justice smiles and asks no more. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. Third and finally, this leads to deliverance. It leads to deliverance, which is symbolized in the feast. Symbolized in the feast, in verse 8, the unleavened bread. It was unleavened because of the quick departure. They didn't have time to let the, the dough rise. So unleavened for the, the quick departure. We also see a reference here in in verse 8 that they were also to eat bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. A reminder of the the bitterness of of slavery. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 14, this same word is (coughs) used there. That the, the Israelites' life was made bitter by their harsh slavery. We also see in 
in verse 11, if you look there. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, what? They were to eat it as if they were ready to go, ready to leave, ready to depart. Bad for digestion, but good for deliverance. Deliverance from what? From the judgment coming on Egypt and from their slavery in Egypt, which was soon to come to an end. This, of course, is what God does, what God has done for us. We were in slavery to sin, but Christ has set us free. We deserved God's judgment, but God has delivered us from it. And the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts, there is a a gruesome painting, we could say, depicting uh, Junius Brutus, who was a, a founder of the Roman Republic. Now, this is not the Brutus who was involved in the, the killing of Julius Caesar, a much earlier uh, Julia, uh, Ju, uh, Junius Brutus. Uh, this, this painting is depicting his condemning his sons to death for treason, for tre- seeking to overthrow the Republic to reinstate the monarchy. And one ancient historian describes that they, they pleaded, his sons pleaded and wept and hoped to persuade his father not to put them to death. His advisors even encouraged him to, to do the same. These are your children. He said this to you, the executioners, I deliver my sons. And as the historian wrote, we read this. In this sentence, he persisted inexorable. Notwithstanding the weeping intercession of the multitude and the cries of the young men calling upon their father by the most endearing names, the executioner seized them, stripped them naked, bound their hands behind them, beat them with rods, and then struck off their heads. The inexorable Brutus looking on the bloody spectacle with unaltered countenance. Thus, he writes, the father was lost in the judge. Father who pronounces a sentence on his own son's. So God pronounces a just sentence. It's a sentence of of death. And we, we deserve death. But God deals with our our sin both mercifully and justly. The good news for us, brothers and sisters in Christ is that we have been delivered by 
the death of another, by the blood of another. In fact, by a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ turns away the wrath of God from his people. We deserved punishment like Egypt, like Israel. But God promised, God poured out his judgment on his own son, his firstborn, his beloved son who died in our place. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, We do not subscribe to the lax theology which teaches that the Lord Jesus did something or other which in some way or other is in some degree or other connected with the salvation of men. We firmly believe the doctrine of the atoning death of our great substitute. We stand to the literal substitution of Jesus Christ in the place of his people and his real endurance of suffering and death in their stead. And from this distinct and definite ground, we will not move an inch. Even the term, the blood, from which some shrink with the affectation of great delicacy, we shall not cease to use, whoever may take offense at it. For it brings out that fundamental truth, which is the power of God unto salvation. We dwell beneath the blood mark and rejoice that Jesus for us poured out his soul unto death. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the song of the Christian. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that we indeed have been redeemed, that we have been saved, that we are justified in Christ and in Christ alone, by his sacrifice, by his blood. And so, O oh God, we thank you for this sign that points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ that you gave to ancient Israelite, the ancient Israelites hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And how we thank you for that precious Lamb of God who did come to take away our sins so that we might know you. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.